Vindictiveness, profiteering, and theft. Julian Assange, Energy Policies, Provocations and Wars. Published 2022, November 30th. Introduction. This essay examines a collection of new topics which are loosely connected through the concepts of vindictiveness, profiteering, and theft. We begin with a brief update on the Assange persecution, then an analysis of movements in the global energy trade are considered with a focus on sanctions on Russia and how she continues to respond to them. We then examine various provocations which the USA is directing against the great powers which she believes she should be threatening. We conclude with a summary of the state of affairs in Ukraine and a more civilizational consideration of this conflict. Assange. The editors and publishers of five major international news organizations, which partnered with WikiLeaks, have issued an open letter calling for the Biden administration, aka regime, to drop all charges related to publishing applied to Julian Assange. Previously, comments of this nature have been issued by editors. The change is that this time it is both the editors and publishers of The Guardian, The New York Times, Le Monde, El País and Der Spiegel. Of course, if they actually wanted to place pressure on the USA government, they would authorise opinion writers and senior journalists to produce a constant stream of articles showing how Assange and WikiLeaks have been abused over the years. There are multiple books worth of material from which to draw upon. This seems extremely unlikely. They are, in effect, doing a cover-my-ass. Caitlin Johnston offers another solution for The Guardian. They could retract all of the lies they have published about Assange. Craig Murray is currently on a tour of Europe to join others calling for an end to this political witch-hunt which threatens journalism. Stella Assange has been delivering speeches to re-raise awareness of her husband's continued and continuing abuse by the USA and UK. Recall that star witness for the hacking charges is a convicted criminal who has refuted his own testimony. All other charges amount to possessing and then publishing classified information, which is what journalists do every day of the week. Knowing that this testimony is destroyed and then the remaining charges are an attack on the First Amendment, the USA regime continues with its vindictiveness. The difference between WikiLeaks and all the rest is that it actually publishes these vast troves of material. A comparison could be made to the Omidyar-funded First Look Media, i.e. The Intercept, and the Soros-funded International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. They possess very interesting data sets. The difference is the availability and particularly the searchability of these data sets. WikiLeaks has excelled in both, whereas these foundation-funded groups have not. Energy policies. The ninth, I repeat, the ninth set of sanctions to be applied against Russia by the EU is set to come into force on December 5th. It will include new measures targeting Russian oil, which is delivered by ship. Exemptions were included to satisfy nations like Hungary, which are landlocked and have no practical alternatives to purchasing Russian energy. The shipping sanctions are targeted at the insurers of ships transporting Russian oil. 
To this measure was to be added a price cap. The EU was seeking a cap of 60 to 70 US dollars per barrel. The general understanding is that Russian energy companies make a profit at anything above 45 US dollars per barrel. Ural's crude peaked just under 100 US dollars per barrel in May and is currently trading at 64 US dollars per barrel. The price cap could not be agreed because Poland wanted it set at 30 US dollars per barrel. This seems nonsensical until one considers the wider picture. A graphic is offered which shows five years of trade of Ural's crude on the world market. Uh, the high point is actually back in 2014, but recently in uh, 2022, just under 100 uh, US dollars per barrel. The lowest point is just after the emergence of the pandemic in March 2020, where it went down to 15 US dollars per barrel. The current trading rate is, as quoted, 64. Russia has said it will refuse to trade in oil with countries which join a group implementing a price cap. Here is a little extemporization on the article, and that is the consideration of OPEC+. In one sense, this can be looked upon as a cartel. It's not entirely, for if these countries refuse to trade in their oil, they will be invaded and they will lose their resources, because everybody needs them. So it's quite an interesting forum in which political considerations are made, but oil trade is maintained at a level which is reasonable, controllable, so it's a, quite an interesting thing. It is far more powerful than the UN General Assembly, which is useful for making political statements, but this is actual financial power that they have. So it's, maybe it's not quite at the level of the UN Security Council, but it's right up there at that sort of level. This is a very, very, very powerful body, OPEC+. Plus. And of course, Russia has a seat at this table. Russia has left itself with some wiggle room in that the if the price is good enough, they'll sell anyway, despite you know whatever policies you claim to pursue. In the end, it's all about price. If the price cap is set at, say, 50 US dollars, Russia would probably refuse to sell. Because Russia supplies about 12% of the global oil trade, this would cause a rise in price. However, it's more complex still. A crude is separated out into the useful fuels which can be extracted from it. Light crudes, like those from Saudi Arabia or many USA wells, are fractionated into light fuels like kerosene or petrol. Heavier crudes produce heavier fuels like heating oil. Russia's Urals crude is one of the heavier type. A reason for the crazy Polish demand of 30 US dollars a barrel is probably that they believe no price cap will either be agreed or effective. Thus, they make this demand as an appeal to domestic politics. Venezuelan and Russian oil. The USA attempted another coup in Venezuela when they stormed the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C., declared their puppet Guaido as the interim president when he'd never stood for this office, impounded huge amounts of assets of the Venezuelan national energy company, PDVSA, located in the USA, approved an idiotic mercenary attack by a bunch of ex-USA military persons and even tried to sort of invade Venezuela via Colombia with aid trucks. Since then, 
the Venezuelan heavy crude, which used to be processed in Texas and supplied heating oils and other products, has been replaced by Ural's crude imported from Russia. This makes up around 8% of the USA's oil imports. When the latest EU sanctions package comes into effect, the USA is going to look pretty treacherous and hypocritical if it continues to import Russian oil. For this reason, a deal has been made between the USA and Venezuela with the UN acting as an intermediary. Three billion US dollars in frozen funds by the USA and Europe will be given to a UN-managed fund. The agreement stipulates that these funds will be spent on humanitarian projects in Venezuela, including healthcare, education and food. The deal was signed in Mexico City between representatives of the Venezuelan government and opposition parties. This is the USA returning that which they stole through a mechanism which they control to achieve their own political ends. This is the sweetener to allow Chevron to re-enter the Venezuelan oil market and deliver the heavy crude to Texas, thus relieving the USA's reliance on Russian Urals crude. See video sources for the interview with Gilbert Doctorow. Venezuela has close ties to both Russia and Iran, and as they are also major oil producers, one can imagine that there was consultation between these three governments on this deal. One would also expect that information was supplied to OPEC Plus by Russia. On a different front, the Russian Deputy Prime Minister Andrei Belovsko announced recently that Russia is in talks with Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan to form a gas union. Exactly what this means remains unclear. It seems to be about stabilising the gas market and particularly transit across Central Asia. To this can be added recent discussions between Russia and Turkey to have Turkey act as a gas hub. Thus, gas from Russia and Central Asian states could be piped to Turkey from where the energy can be on-sold to Europe. This will essentially bypass the idiotic, shoot-yourself-in-the-foot-to-make-the-US-happy sanctions on Russian gas, which the EU has adopted. These insane sanctions are largely now moot. The attacks against three of the four Nord Stream pipelines reduced Europe's ability to receive Russian gas. That the investigation into the incident is being guarded behind both Swedish and German national security screens informs us that Russia had nothing to do with it, whatever media pundits may claim. See video sources for the hilarious video compilation by Matt Offlayer. Countering Inflation The recent USA Act to supposedly counter inflation in the US also includes government handouts subsidies for various industries. Some EU officials recently expressed their outrage at this and the increased costs of liquid natural gas from the USA compared to other suppliers, i.e. Russia. Of course, they knew of the impending price increase. Any energy analyst could have informed them of this. Actually, anyone with a high school level understanding of physics could have told them this. The outrage is based on the subsidies. The end result is that various European manufacturing industries are leaving Europe because the energy supplies are too expensive and are relocating to the USA. 
Essentially, the USA is stealing European industries under the cover of the energy sanctions demanded of Europe after the war in Ukraine began. Well, the latest phase, let's put it that way. This conflict was created by the USA and Ukraine refusing to embrace the Minsk II Accords and then threatening a massacre or genocide in the Donbass. It seems that some EU officials are starting to wake up to the steal. They accuse the USA of profiteering provocations. The USA has just joined Israel in running a military exercise which simulates a bombing attack on Iran. The expense of tens of millions of dollars to run the exercises allows the militaries to have a lot of fun at the expense of the taxpayer. The geopolitical effect is purely to provoke Iran and serve some domestic political agenda in the two nations. This exercise followed the USA's CENTCOM announcing that it will deploy over 100 maritime drones to the Persian Gulf by 2023. This is obviously a threat to Iran's navy of fast, small boats. Following in the footsteps of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and meeting with its local political leadership, USA's Vice President Kamala Harris recently visited the Philippines. Her first salvo whilst visiting the Philippine President Fernand Marcos Jr., note the name, was to declare that any Chinese aggression against Philippine military or civilian vessels or aircraft would invoke a response from the USA based upon the 1951 Mutual Defense Treaty signed between the US and the Philippines. Her second salvo while standing aboard a Philippine Coast Guard ship was to say that the US would lead a campaign against, quote, irresponsible behavior, end quote, in the region. The USS Chancellorsville, a U.S. Navy guided missile cruiser, sailed near the disputed Spratly Islands in the South China Sea on November 29th in a completely not irresponsible manner. Unsurprisingly, this involved communications between the Chinese and USA navies. The USS Chancellorsville left the area as requested by the Chinese Navy. The Chinese military claimed that, quote, the actions of the U.S. military seriously violated China's sovereignty and security, end quote. The U.S. Navy essentially said hogwash. The South China Sea is an area of overlapping claims by many nations. The complexity of the claims are depicted in an image provided in the article. It and Taiwan serve as means for the USA to create tensions between regional neighbours or even provoke a war. Ukraine. Ukraine has failed to even apologise for its recent accidental attack on Poland which killed two farm workers. Ukraine's provocative claim that the missiles were Russian had to be quickly downplayed before the war-drumming media took things beyond control. Although it was the journalist, not the editors, who was the fall guy for this overly excessive beating of the drums of war by Associated Press, we can learn that the media have been told to calm down. Think about what this implies. Since then, the free media of the West have been denied access to Kherson City by Ukraine, where reprisals against Russian collaborators have been occurring. 
pictures of people bound to lampposts have been published. Other reports include a mother and son being murdered. More gruesome claims include people being physically abused and then thrown alive into grinding machines used to lay new roadworks. Russia's recent campaign to significantly damage Ukraine's electricity grid has continued. A loss of power has a widespread effect on an economy and society. Businesses fail, schools and hospitals cannot run effectively, and of course the rail transport system, which is dominantly electric in Ukraine, is heavily affected. Dima, from the Military Summary Channel, highlighted recent missile strikes in Kherson and surrounding areas which are designed to disable the rail transport system in the area. See video sources. Ukraine has positioned many mechanized units in the area. Russia and her allies are now even more focused on the Donetsk front, especially around Bakhmud. Ukraine may wish to reposition many of the forces in Kherson, but the attacks against the transport infrastructure are making this more difficult effectively costing Ukraine in fuel, which they lack, and lengthening travel times and thus exposing units to attack whilst slowly relocating. Recent reports suggest that Bakhmud is close to being surrounded. It is a critical transport hub in this area of the Donetsk Oblast. Its capture would leave the last line of Ukrainian defence to that of Slovyansk and Kramatorsk to the west. The ratio of killed in combat between Russia and her allies and Ukraine seem to be in the 1 to 7 or 1 to 10 range. Thus, Ukraine is suffering far higher casualties. She is also woefully short of equipment and ammunition. To highlight the problem, President Zelensky recently called for NATO to step up weapons production. Perhaps he is neither aware of just how short of excess stocks NATO is nor how long it takes to produce NATO standard weapons systems. Many Western publications spouted comments made by the British Ministry of Defence in which old cruise missiles had their nuclear warheads replaced with ballast. The MOD inference was that this implies that Russia is running out of missiles. We have all heard this impending no more of whatever for Russia since February. It is a tired trope. What is actually happening is that Russia is firing some of its old missile stock as decoys to either divert or locate Ukrainian air defense systems. This is a standard tactic. The MOD either knows this or are idiots. They are not idiots. They are playing the information warfare game. The idiots are at the media outlets who published this rubbish. They are also playing the information warfare game. Colonel Douglas McGregor recently stated, based upon intelligence data, that Russia has 540,000 troops near the borders of Ukraine, including tanks, armoured fighting vehicles, missiles and logistical equipment in the thousands. See video sources for the full interview below. This implies that Russia is capable of launching a colossal offensive into Ukraine. The only people who know what the Russian and Allied militaries will do are the Russian general staff, specifically General Surovikin. He has already shown his the gloves are off approach, 
with the attacks on Ukraine's energy grid and his understanding of timing and logistics by withdrawal of citizens and Russian forces from the right bank in Kherson city and surrounds. McGregor remarked that there is a required pause before such a massive offensive can be launched. The ground must freeze. This will require temperatures to remain below zero for several weeks, placing the earliest time for such an offensive in the latter half of December. Another recent commentator observed that USA and NATO member states' experience of war is expeditionary. Russia's is dominantly fighting on her own soil. She understands the economic and manufacturing components of war. She has convened a coordinating council, not seen since World War II, to streamline logistics from supply to where the materiel are needed. At the recent 15th anniversary of Rostec, a Russian military production conglomerate, Russian President Putin congratulated the group for their efforts. Factories are working in multiple shifts to operate around the clock. Leave has been delayed. Some may view this as a measure of desperation. I suggest this is an error. While there are voices in Russia to end this war, they are generally being suppressed. The vast majority of the population see this war for what it is, a battle between NATO and Russia. Their grandparents sacrificed much for Russia's survival in World War II. The challenge has passed to them. Just as the USA awoke its manufacturing might during World War II, so did Russia. She is very capable when awoken. As a further aside, consider the production capacity of the US and Russia in delivering materiel to front lines during World War II. This is a completely unfair comparison because essentially what Russia needed to do was repair and maintain railway lines, whereas what the USA needed to do was deliver the material via shipping across the North Atlantic. And of course, they had to run the gauntlet of U-boats. So it's, it's not a fair comparison. One thing can be noted, and that was that the USA's shipbuilding capacity was astounding. They were producing ships faster than you could count. It was amazing. So it's not a fair comparison, but it's an interesting one. And it's a, a subject I've paid some attention to in my review of uh, World War II, and I encourage my listeners to actually go about doing that. How many tanks did the USA and Russia deliver to the front lines in Europe during World War II? Have a look at that and understand. This will help you understand the nature of the military production capacity, logistics, manufacturing, delivery, that is hugely important uh, in a conflict. Of course, the number of forces on the ground, the effectiveness of the officer class and their communications are also hugely important as well, as is morale itself. But without the manufacturing and logistics, you're screwed. So understand this. And of course, this all falls back to the economic part of this too. So this is one way in which to look at what's going on now and and compare it to the sorts of structures and and approaches that were taken during World War II. And I think this is educational to do a comparison in this manner, looking at politics, economics, manufacturing, resource access, 
level of training and quality of troops, especially the officer class, and then of course, communications and logistics. These are the fundamental things that allow one to understand the efficacy of a fighting force. This time around, Russia is not being assisted by the USA against the Wehrmacht. She's being assisted by her Asian allies in her latest conflict in Europe, provoked on this occasion by the USA. Civilizational battles or the end of history. A wonderful article. Please see the main written article for a link by Professor Paul Robinson is published in Canadian Dimension on the 200th anniversary of a Russian philosopher. Robinson places the person in a historical context and their ideas in current times. I highly recommend reading it to gain an understanding of how Russia sees herself and how she thinks about this current conflict. A review of three books on the origins of the conflict and potential ways out of it are provided by James Carden of Akura. Please also see the article for a link to that article. Conclusion These threads of vindictiveness, profiteering and theft can also be seen in the USA's oligarchy. It controls their political process continues to oppress the USA's coloured and poor populations and uses the taxes that they pay and the oligarchs do not to direct USA foreign and domestic policies to their advantage. Thanks for listening. Until next time.